Yes, I was telling everybody the latest news today, so I uh, won't repeat it for all of you. You can read the paper if you want. Um, and not just repeating the news for to gossip, but, you know, because sometimes when we look at what's going on in the world and then we look at our ability to practice the Dharma, we really appreciate it. Yeah, and we see that all these people have so many problems that we're actually free from having because we aren't involved with, you know, impure morality and, you know, getting indicted and prosecuted and, and so on. So, okay, so we're talking about Buddha nature again today. We're almost done with this book. Yeah, so, and then we'll go on to uh, volume four, following in the footsteps of the Buddha. Is that the title? Following in the Buddha's footsteps, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the names of the books I write. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's begin with visualizing the merit field. And having a happy mind at um, having reliable refuges in our lives. And how nice it is to be able to turn to them for guidance and teachings. And to learn how to get, live a good life, how to live a worthwhile life. So the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha uh, teach us that. And then we're surrounded by all the sending beings who want happiness, but due to ignorance, especially ignorance about the law of karma and its effects, especially due to that, all these beings in their search for happiness wind up creating a lot of negativity. And when they act in self-centered ways, harming others, and when we harm others, we are harming ourselves through the creation of destructive karma. And so seeing that this is the situation of the world, and not just that it's the situation of the world, but that people don't aren't even aware of how cloud, uh, crowded or clouded, how obscured their minds are. And we're in that bunch too. You know, because when afflictions arise in our mind, we think that they're telling us 
what's right, what's the way to happiness, so we follow our afflictions. And at that moment, you know, we're just not even aware of the creation of negative karma. We're not aware, we don't care if we're doing it. So seeing that this is kind of the state of most living beings on this planet, it's, it's a very sad situation. And it's sad, too, that we uh, waste our own lives in afflictions without realizing what we're doing. So we'll take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, then we'll have a few minutes of uh, silence. I just set, set the motivation. Usually I do it after the meditation, but now in the meditation, think about the motivation that I set, and then after that we'll start the, the talk. So in the material we covered last week, uh, there's a lot to think about. <laughs> and there's a lot, you have to go back and read it and study it and really think about what is being said because, uh, you know, if you when you heard the teachings, you heard that some words had very different meanings in different contexts. And so you have to understand, you know, what the context is, what a word means, and uh, how that all relates to the whole topic of Buddha nature. And also how when we're talking about Buddha nature, uh, we're talking, it's, it's important to have the background of the two truths, ultimate and conventional truths, because... You know, it, sometimes we talk about the, new, the Buddha nature being the ultimate truth of the mind, 
the empty nature of the mind. Sometimes we talk about it being the clear light nature of the mind, which is the conventional nature. Yeah, so we have to, there's a lot to keep in mind to kind of set the stage, and it requires some work on on your part. If you just come and then uh, maybe take some notes, but then go away and don't look at anything, then you come back the next week and it's like, uh, well, she just, we're talking about Buddha nature. And that's all you remember. <laughs> but if somebody says, well, what is Buddha nature? <laughs> you know, you're not sure what to, what to say. Okay, so I just wanted to review a little bit from um, what we were talking about in the the last section where His Holiness was clearing up some of the possible misinterpretations people could have from the language that is often used to talk about Buddha nature. Okay? So he uh, was talking about first this quote. He didn't say where it was from. Within afflictions, wisdom abides. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, if we take that literally, it sounds like afflictions have the nature of wisdom. And that, uh, yeah, but then that seems pretty contradictory because na- uh, afflictions are based on ignorance, which is grasps the total opposite of how wisdom apprehends things. So it gets a little bit confusing. So what is meant by wisdom in that situation? Normally wisdom, yeah. Well, again, there's many different ways. We can talk about an Arya's wisdom. You know, we could talk about the wisdom of the conventional nature, the wisdom of the ultimate nature. There's many different ways to talk about wisdom. Okay, here in this case... With infliction, afflictions, wisdom abides. Wisdom is referring to the clear light nature of the mind that can transform into the resultant state. Okay, so the clear and cognizant nature of the mind that uh, can, its continuity can go to uh, awakening. Okay. Now, what does it mean then, within afflictions, wisdom arises? Well, afflictions, yeah, those, uh, the afflictions that form a, uh, a distorted or a polluted mental state, yeah, the afflictions are, are mental factors, and there's a primary mind, a primary mental consciousness, yeah, and the nature of the primary mental consciousness, and even of the afflictions, well, not not really the afflictions. Let's stick with the primary uh, primary mental consciousness. Um, you know that mind is just clear and cognizant. Yeah. So the afflictions color it and make it something harmful, make it a destructive mental state, but. Just the clear and cognizant nature of an afflicted mind, if you take out the afflicted part, that clear and cognizant nature, can that 
can go on to full awakening. Okay, so the mind of the mind of anger or the mental state of anger that is not Buddha nature. It can the, it cannot go to awaken. The afflicted mental states have to be eliminated, but the clear and cognizant aspect of an afflicted mental state, just that aspect of it, that can go on to to Buddhahood. Okay? So the, um, you know, when, when Nagarjuna talks about like that, I don't know if he said that quote or, or about that idea that within afflictions, wisdom abides. Um, Nagarjuna and the Sutra viewpoint are talking, their wisdom uh, is the continuity of the mental consciousness. Okay? So, you know, the continuity of the mental consciousness in most situations would not be called wisdom. But here it's caused wisdom, called wisdom because its continuity is the basis for attaining awakening. Yeah, without that clear and cognizant nature of the mental consciousness, awakening can't be attained. Okay, so that's, that's the usage according to the sutra perspective. According to the Dzogchen and Mahamudra perspective, and the persp- uh, because they're looking at it from the viewpoint of highest Yogatantra, okay, wisdom is referring to the innate clear light mind. Okay, now what's the difference between the innate clear light mind that's being referred to in the tantric sense and the clear and cognizant nature of the mind that is being referred to in the sutra sense? Okay, just saying the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, that could be a subtle mind, a a coarse mind, it could be any kind of uh, level of mind. But when we talk about the innate clear light mind, which is the perspective that Dzogchen and Mahamudra are talking about, then we're talking about that subtlest level of consciousness that arises at the time of death or that arises uh, when yogis are meditating and able to uh, dissolve all the winds in the central channel so that all the coarse levels of mind also dissolve and then leaving just that extremely subtle, um, innate clear light mind. Okay. So that innate clear light mind, sometimes in, in, uh, the perspective of Sokchen and Mahamudra, they will call it non-composite. Okay. Now, non-composite, it's another tricky word, because usually something that is non-composite is permanent. Composite phenomena that are made of different parts that come about to causes and conditions are impermanent. So here we're talking about the extremely subtle mind. You know, are, are Zogchen and Mahamudra saying that mind is permanent? 
you know, from all, everything we've learned before, no, you know, a ment uh, the mind is never and can never be permanent. So what non-composite means in that situation when Dzogchen and Mahamudra and, and, um, you know, the, the, the uh, wisdom of bliss and emptiness is being discussed. Okay. We're talking about that extremely subtle, clear light mind. Okay. Why is it called non-composite? And what does non-composite mean here? Here, in this situation, non-composite does not mean permanent. It means it's referring to that mind, and it means that that clear light mind has existed beginninglessly, and it will continue into the future endlessly. Okay? So usually when we say permanent, you know, we mean it's not changing at all. Here, permanent is referring to the fact that it's existed beginninglessly and will exist endlessly. It's not referring to the mind uh, not changing moment because the mind does change moment by moment. If it couldn't, we could never attain Buddhahood. Yeah, because mind would be permanent. Yeah. So the clear light mind has existed beginninglessly and it will exist eternally. So here... Permanent means eternal. Okay. So this, from the viewpoint, again, of, of uh, Dzogchen and Mahamudra, the, the Buddha nature is um, that innate, ever-present clear light mind. Yeah. That's, that's the viewpoint, what they're talking about, what the Buddha nature is. From the... Uh, you know, when the seventh Dalai Lama's talking, he's talking from the sutra viewpoint, and there they don't talk about different levels of minds and, you know, so on. Okay. Okay, is that clear to people? Yeah. Um, okay, then Long Chenpa, you know, who is a, a very well-known Nyingma master, said that what is, uh, I don't know if he said it or again, if this is in a text by some, or, or a tantra. But anyway, the quotation is, what is primordially awakened becomes reawakened. Okay. So if you're thinking of the Buddha nature, the Buddha nature is primordially awakened. Primordially means beginninglessly. Yeah, whenever you see, usually primordial, primordially means from the beginning, but in Buddhism it means beginningless because there's no beginning. Okay, so, um, yeah. So what is um, primordially awakened becomes reawakened. So it's referring to the um, natural nirvana. Do you remember what natural nirvana is? There's four different kinds of nirvana. Do you remember what the four are? Okay, what's natural nirvana? Okay, it's the emptiness of the mind. Specifically sentient beings' minds. Okay, 
So, um, yeah, so that emptiness is permanent. Yeah. Um, and because there's that natural, empty, natural nirvana of the mind, then it's possible to attain awakening. Because if the mind were inherently existent, okay, something that is her- inherently existent does not change. It does because it does not rely on any other phenomena and it is not affected by any other phenomena. So if, uh, again, if the mind, um, you know, were permanent, then there's no way we could attain awakening. So the natural nirvana of the mind, yeah, is the the emptiness, empty nature of sentient beings' mind. And on that basis, nirvana can be atten- attained. Okay, so because the mind is empty, nirvana can be attained. So when it says within... Um, when it says uh, what is primordially awakened becomes reawakened, okay? So what is primordially awakened is referring to the natural nirvana of the mind and becomes we reawakened would mean that it becomes the nature truth body of the Buddha. Okay, so we have two things. Because the mind, the ultimate nature of the mind is empty, yeah, it can, we can attain Buddhahood because that ultimate nature of the mind can become the nature, uh, truth body of the Buddha. And then because the clear light nature, the fundamental uh, innate, well, the clear light nature of the mind in general, and especially the uh, because we have the fundamental innate mind of clear light, yeah, that's another basis for becoming a Buddha because that mind can become the Buddha's omniscient mind. Okay, so what we're seeing here is based on the fundamental innate mind of clear light, its conventional nature and its ultimate nature, both provide the bases for attaining awakening because both of them be- can become, um, it, you know, the, the uh, dharmakaya of the Buddha, one becoming the nature dharmakaya, one becoming the wisdom dharmakaya. Okay? So that's to review a little bit. You see what I mean when I said you have to go back and think about it? Yeah. Okay, so we'll start on page 332 at the top, Causal Clear Light Mind. Mm-hmm. Sure. I've been puzzling about this all week, but we talk a lot about how the emptiness of the um, Buddha's omniscient mind, how important that is, but we never talk about the, the emptiness. How important, I mean, the, the, the two natures of that Buddha's mind yeah. are essential. But... I never heard anybody talk about the emptiness of the form bodies. Is that just the okay, the form body, yeah, when we talk about a um a sambokakaya, actually a sambokakaya is a person. Okay? Yeah, it's a person who 
uh, it's a manifestation of the Buddha in a pure land that God sent him beings. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, when you have, are awakened, yeah, you have the subtlest clear light mind and together with it, the subtlest wind, yeah, which are one nature. And the subtlest wind becomes manifest as the body of the form body, and the subtlest mind becomes the mind of that emanation of the Buddha. Okay? So when it says body, when we talk about the four bodies of the Buddha, it doesn't mean physical body. Body means like a, like when we say a body of people. It means a group of people, a collection. Okay, so. Okay, so the causal clear light mind. The causal clear light mind can be spoken of from the perspective of both sutra and tantra. Sutra speaks of the continuity of the mental consciousness, which is present at all times. The jhana, jhana is the Sanskrit word that is can be translated as wisdom. It can be translated as consciousness, I think. No, it's, no, it's, I'm sorry. It's a different spelling that's consciousness. This one's wisdom. So the, the jhana that abides in the afflictions refers to the continuum of this mental consciousness. Okay. So the clear and cognizant. Continuity of the mental consciousness. While the continuum of the mental consciousness is not actual pristine wisdom, it will become this wisdom as we progress through the paths and grounds to Buddhahood. So those of you who were here when we studied the paths and grounds, then you remember, I mean, it's there's a whole map about what you meditate and what you abandon at each thing, you know, it, yeah, it's all laid out. Okay, highest yoga tantra differentiates two types of mind. The temporary adventitious consciousness, those are the course levels of mind, and the innate ever-present clear light mind. When all the coarser levels of mind, okay, including the white appearance, red increase, and black near attainment, those are are subtler states of mind that manifest during the death process as the coarse mind and coarse body are losing their uh, ability and, and dissolving. Okay. Uh, so when the coarser levels of mind, including the white appearance, red increase, and black near attainment have dissolved, the subtlest innate clear light mind becomes manifest only this mind remains. Okay. The fact that all the other minds have dissolved indicates that they are adventitious. In other words, they are not the, the nature of the mind that is, is always there. They are, they're, yeah, they come and they go. Yeah, they're temporary. They're adventitious. While the subtlest innate clear light mind which has existed since beginningless time and continues on endlessly to awakening, that mind persists, whereas the coarser minds don't. 
Okay, is that, yeah? So from the perspective of highest yoga tantra, the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, that the mind that is the fundamental innate clear light mind, yeah, that underlies all consciousnesses. But we should not equate clarity and cognizance in general with the fundamental innate clear light mind because all consciousnesses are clear and cognizant. Okay? So if it's clear and cognizant, oh, well, let, let's do, what are the four points between uh, clear and cognizant mind and fundamental innate mind of clear light? What are the four things? What is both of them? Mm -hmm. The... Yeah, it's, it's, it would be the clarity and cognizance of the fundamental innate clear light mind. Okay. What is, um, what were the two we were doing? What is, what is clear and cognizant, but is not the fundamental innate mind of clear light? Give an example. Yeah, your ear consciousness or your coarse mental consciousness. Or your greedy mind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What is not clear and cognizant, but is the fundamental innate mind, nature, uh, fundamental innate clear light mind? There's nothing. Okay. And what is neither clear nor cognizant, nor the fundamental innate mind of clear light? Hmm? Yeah, your irresistance power. Okay. So it's good to, you know, when you are studying to do this thing, and, and it really helps you think about what something is. Okay. So we should not equate clarity and cognizance in general with the fundamental innate mind of clear light. All consciousnesses are clear and cognizant because that is the definition of consciousness. The fundamental innate clear light mind is the subtlest mind. The coarser minds of the awakening uh, state are derivatives of this everlasting mind. Although they have a clear and cognizant nature, they are not this subtlest innate mind. Okay. So like the white, red, and, and black stages. Neither the, continu neither the continuum of the mental consciousness spoken of in Sutra, nor the fundamental innate clear light mind spoken of in Tantra is a soul or inherently existent self. Both are empty of inherent existence. And that's a very important point because it's so easy when you talk about something that is, uh, you know, beginningless and endless, to think of it as a soul. Yeah? And then as soon as you think soul, it becomes something permanent that doesn't change. And then you're down the slippery slope to becoming a non-Buddhist. <laughs> okay? Okay, so then the next section is what continues to awakening? Okay, does your body go on to awakening? 
Okay. Does does your pride in being better than other people go on to awakening? <laughs> yeah. Does your reputation go on to awakening? Does the fact that some people like you and some people don't like you, does that go on to awakening? <laughs> oh, I see. You want us all to cheer when you become a Buddha. Okay, so who is the person that goes from being an ordinary being to an Arya to a Buddha? To answer this, we speak of the general eye and then also the specific eye. So we've talked about this before, if you remember. How many people remember the discussion? Uh, yeah. Oh, so you all know if I ask you what, what the general eye is, you can tell me? Okay, what's the general lie? Venerable Rinchen, what's the general lie? The general lie is labeled in dependence on the uh, continuum of the mental consciousness going from life to life. Um, kind of, but it's more designated independence on all the specific eyes. Okay, are you a specific eye? Is Venerable Rinchen a specific eye or a general eye? Or both? A specific eye, or an instance of a specific eye. Yeah, it's a specific eye. Yeah, what do you think? Do, do you, the rest of you agree? She's a specific eye. Are you a specific eye? Are you a general eye? If I say, are you a specific eye? Are you a general eye? You can say, yes, I'm both. If I say, are you a specific eye? Yes. Are you a general eye? Well, if you refers to this body, these aggregates, then no, these aggregates are not the basis of designation of the general eye. Okay. Okay. So to answer who go. Uh, who's the person that goes from being an ordinary being to an Arya to a Buddha. We speak of the general eye, the continuity of the merely designated eye from one life to the next. Okay, so it's the continuity of the merely designated eye, not of the mind. Yeah. And the specific eye of each lifetime that constitutes that continuity. The specific eye of each lifetime is designated in dependence on the aggregates of that life. Since our physical and mental aggregates change from one lifetime to the next, the eye designated in dependence on them also changes. So we do not have the same specific eye 
in one life and in the next life. Okay. In one lifetime, we may be Susan in the next John, in the next a cockroach, in the next a god. Okay. So the specific eyes can be very, very different. Okay. Uh, so these are all the, these are the specific eyes of those three life. Oh, I, I skipped a sentence. In one lifetime, we may be a monkey, in another, a human being, and in yet another, a deva. These are the specific eyes of those three lifetimes. Okay. So does Geshila exist? Does it? Yeah. Not as a specific eye. Yeah, not as a specific eye. Is Geshe-la the general eye? No, Geshe-la is a specific eye. Does that specific eye exist now? No. Does the general eye exist? Yes. So Geshe-la was one blip in that whole long continuity of all the specific eyes that constitute that general eye. So that's one lifetime in that whole beginningless, endless continuity. Yeah? And what we are in this lifetime is similarly one little blip in that whole long continuity. Yeah. If we had clairvoyance, we could see in the past and see what we were. Yeah. And we were, you know, the, when we say we were, it's referring to the general eye. Yeah. Also, uh, you know, those different people, or we were designated independence on all those people. Okay. And also, when I say the word people, it doesn't mean just human beings. Okay, a person can be a cat as a, you know, a cockroach, a spider. All these are, are also people, persons. Yeah. Can I just easily understand it as the specific eye is a person and the general eye is a label on that continuity? Um both the specific and the general eye are persons, and both of them are designated. Okay? The specific eye is designated on the five aggregates of a specific lifetime. The general eye is designated on the all those different specific eyes. That you know, that continuity of specific eyes. Well, a person, the definition of a person is what is merely designated in dependence on four or five aggregates. Yeah, but it's, it's the, the, the uh, individual moments, the individual specific eyes, they're designated in dependence on the four or five aggregates of a particular lifetime. And the general eye, yeah, is you see all these different lifetimes, and then the general eye is designated. 
independence on that. Let's go on. It may be easier to understand. Okay. So the general eye or person that goes from one life to the next is designated independence on the series of specific eyes. Okay. Uh, the Buddha spoke of the general eye when he said, in my previous life, I was a king. In the present life, I am Shakyamuni Buddha. So, you know, you hear him say that. So when he says, in the previous life, I was a king, yeah, uh, what I was the king? Okay? Because he's saying, you know, I was the king. So, you know, he's talking about a, a previous specific I that, like the present I of Shakyamuni Buddha, are um, the the eyes, the specific eyes upon which the general I is designated, or independence on the what how the general eye is, is designated independence on that continuity of specific eyes. Okay, or on the all of, yeah, well, the whole all of specific eyes. So the person or eye that exists continuously in the past, present, and future without interruption is the general eye. That general eye encompasses the monkey of one life, the human in the next, and the deva in the life after that. The monkey, human being, and deva are the specific persons of those individual lives. They are born and die. The general eye goes from samsara to full awakening. Okay? So the specific eyes cease, but the continuity of the general eye of which each specific I is a member, yeah, um, that goes on without, uh, it uninterruptedly, and it can't be ceased. Okay? So when speaking of the self that exists in the three times, in the past, present, and future, we are not referring to a subtle self or a core self. No distinction like that is made. It is simply the general I. Likewise, without making any distinction in terms of subtler course, we say there is a general mental consciousness that exists in the past, present, and future. Okay, so we can say the general mental consciousness goes on to awakening. Okay, but, well, we'll get into it. Yeah, keep listening. Although the general mental consciousness goes from one life to the next and on to awakening, the specific mental consciousnesses of the sentient beings in that continuum do not. Okay? Because the specific persons do not go on to awakening. They cease at the time of death. And they are designated in dependence upon the five aggregates of that life. When we die, yeah, we're abandoning the five aggregates of that life. Yeah, 
the continuity of the of the mental consciousness goes on. Yeah, the continuity of the coarse body doesn't. The the worms have lunch, okay, or it gets burned and it pollutes the air. But um, okay, so the specific mental consciousnesses of the sentient beings in in each that uh, are of the specific eyes that are in the that continuity of general eye. Those specific mental consciousnesses don't go on to awakening. Okay, because when you're a monkey, you have the mental consciousness of a monkey. When you're a human being, you have the mental consciousness of a human being. Okay, those are different, you know, mental consciousnesses. They think differently. They operate differently. Yeah? It almost sounds like this subtle, fundamental, innate, clear-light mind is separate from our aggregates. No, don't don't bring that in. Here we're not talking about subtler course. Okay? The, the, the subtlest, clear-light mind is part of the aggregates. If it weren't, then it would be an independent soul. The subtlest, clear-light mind you know, is a consciousness that underlays or underlies all of the coarse consciousnesses. So all of this about the general and specific eyes within the sutra context. Yeah, and it applies for tantra also. It's not contradictory in tantra. No, but when you say we leave all the aggregates behind... We do. But what about what happens to the subtle... The, the subtle, when <laughs> that, leave it behind, we're in trouble. well, just as we have the general eye, independence on each moment of the, the fundamental clear light mind, we let, we designate fundamental clear light mind. That goes on. Okay. But the mental consciousness of each lifetime doesn't. Okay. The consciousness aggregate of the monkey. Yeah, consciousness aggregate of the monkey. So we're talking here just in general, not specifically sutra or tantra. Okay. The consciousness aggregate of the monkey is not the substantial cause of the consciousness aggregate of the human being in the next rebirth. Now it seems like, well, maybe it should be. Why isn't it? Because you have the last moment of the the monkey mind and the next moment in the bardo is considered the first moment of the human human being. So isn't that isn't the monkey mind the 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 substantial cause, the last moment of the monkey mind, the the substantial cause of the first moment of the the human mind? Some people are saying no, and some people are saying yes. Why are you saying no? Would have to be inherently existent, I think, for it to go. It's not. It's not inherently existent. 
Well, if it were inherently existent, then the human being would have a monkey mind. I'm sorry, that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. I didn't say it right, but that's what I meant. Yeah, we do have a monkey mind, but not the <laughs> not the consciousness aggregate of a monkey. Okay. Now some people over on the side said, you know, that the substantial cause of the first moment of the human human being is the last moment of the monkey mind, the monkey's mind. Why did you say that? <laughs> no, it's not in the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, the consciousness aggregate of the monkey is not the substantial cause of the consciousness aggregate of the human being in the next rebirth. See, it says the opposite of what you said. Okay, however, the last moment of the consciousness of one life is the substantial cause for the first moment of the consciousness of the next life. Yes, when we're talking about consciousness in general, meaning uh, clear and cognizant. But the last moment of the monkey's mind is not the does not is not the substantial cause of the first moment of the human mind. Because a monkey mind cannot become a human mind. Can a is is the last moment of a monkey's body, I, I, here we're shifting to a different thing, is the last moment of a monkey's body the f substantial cause of the first moment of the human body of the next life? No. They're different bodies, and similarly, they're different mental consciousnesses. Okay. The mental consciousnesses of all these lives are clear and cognizant. Yeah, but just ask Upeka if if he thinks like a human being and if he can discern things the, in the same way as a human being does. Yeah, food, he would say yes. <laughs> or at least cat food, he would say yes. Chocolate, he wouldn't discern that as food at all. So is it more that the, the consciousness aggregate of the monkey is not the substantial cause for the consciousness aggregate of the human, but the clarity and consciousness of the last moment of mind of the monkey is the substantial cause of the clarity and con cognizance of the first moment of mind of the human. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, in this way, it is said that the continuity of... of the mental consciousness goes on to awakening. Okay, if we're just talking about clarity and awareness, that goes on. Last moment is a substantial cause for the, the next moment. Here, just we're not talking tantra and subtlest mind in here. Okay. However, this mental consciousness is not a truly existent self or soul. So just because it continues on to awakening, doesn't mean it's inherently existent. Okay. But we think, oh, it goes on to inherent, it goes on to awakening. It's the essence of me. Yeah, it's it's what's really me underneath it all. It's it's the real me. Sorry, it's not. 
it's our mind that makes that up because we want to grasp, you know. We see something, and instead of seeing it as something that is arises dependently, we see it as self-instituting, as there. There's something real that goes from the last moment of the monkey mind to the first moment of the human mind, and that real thing is really me. Now, is there anything that goes unchanged? from the monkey mind to to the human mind? No. So the last moment of the monkey mind is becomes the past. The first moment of the human mind is the present. Then the next moment after that of the human mind, you know, it, it keeps continuing like that. So we have to pay attention to how things are worded. Yeah? And what they actually are referring to here. As discussed above, because afflictions such as ignorance are eradicated on the path and do not go on to awakening, they cannot be considered Buddha nature. Although afflictions do not continue on to awakening, the clear and cognizant characteristic of the afflictions does. Here it is helpful to understand two kinds of continuity. So one is called the continuity of type, in which the cause and the result share similar characteristics. For example, the table, this table yesterday and the, this table today are in the continuity of a, of a similar type because they're both this this table, just different moments of it, okay? okay? The second kind of continuity is a continuity of substance in which one thing is the substance that transforms into another thing, okay? So some, if we burn the table and we have a bunch of, you know, ashes, the ashes are the continuity of substance from the table because it's what happened. It's the continuity of the wood, okay? But the ashes are not the um, the continuity of type of the table because ashes and table are, are two different things, okay? So, for example, a log burns and becomes ashes, the ashes are the substantial continuity of the log because the material of the log turned into the ashes. Okay? So when a body is cremated, it's the substantial cause of the ashes that remain. Or if it's buried, it becomes the substantial cause of the decaying material that the worms eat. Or, you know, or it can be, uh, you know, if in old Tibet, when they hacked up the bodies, yeah, then it's the substantial cause of the parts of the body that become the food for the vultures. Okay. Uh, where were we? Oh, okay. The ashes are not the continuity of type of the log because the log and the ashes do not have similar characteristics. 
applying this to the question of afflictions continuing to awakening, the awakened mind is not the continuity of type of afflictions. Why? Because afflictions are polluted. They are the true origin of dukkha. The awakened mind is unpolluted, and it's not the true origin. Okay, so those things are not the continuity of, of type because a polluted mind and awakened mind are very different. The characteristics are different. Okay, so the two, these two do not um, share the same characteristics. However, the clear and cognizant nature of the awakened mind is in the substantial continuity of the clear and cognizant nature of the afflictions. Okay, so when we're talking about the clear and cognizant nature of the afflictions, yeah, the emphasis is on clear and cognizant, yeah? And that becomes the substantial cause for the clear and cognizant nature of a Buddha's mind. Okay? From one perspective, it seems that if the mind grasping inherent existence just changed objects and apprehended emptiness instead, it would be a virtuous mind. Seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah? Okay. In that case, from the viewpoint of substance, yeah, uh, clarity and cognizance, that's the substance, from the viewpoint of substance, clar clarity and cognizance, ignorance and wisdom would be in the same substantial continuity because they're... Clarity and cognizance is the same substantial continuity. Okay. But from the perspective of their characteristics, ignorance and the wisdom realizing emptiness are total opposites, and one cannot become the other. The ignorance grasping true existence does not go to awakening. It is to a totally distorted consciousness that cannot improve or become virtuous. In fact, when the antidote of the wisdom realizing emptiness is applied, ignorance degenerates and becomes non-existence. Existent. But if we look just at the clear and cognizant nature of ignorance, we can say that it can be purified, and its purified continuum goes on to awakening. Okay, some of you uh, look happy with that explanation, and some of you look unhappy with it. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering if this, um, where is it there? These continuity of type and continuity of substance, is that like from collected topics? Yeah, topic. yeah, it usually comes in that context. Yeah? And uh, talking about this, the clarity and cognizance of both the afflicted mind and the awakened mind, there is no continuity of substance in this particular example. Well, the, the, the 
continuity of substance could be the clear and cognizant nature. That gets purified. Yeah, that gets purified. Yeah, when you're talking just about the clear and cognizant nature, you know, that that's a continuity of substance. But if you're talking about an afflicted mind and a, a realized mind, there's not the continuity, yeah, of substance, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm still stuck three paragraphs up. So I'm I'm okay with saying, you know, the last moment of clarity and cognizance of one life is the substantial cause for the clarity and cognizance the first moment of clarity and cognizance of the next life. Okay. When we talk about the you know, and I, I know why it's important to talk about the afflictions, but what about, say, the the virtuous mental qualities, mm -hmm. the idea that if I grow my compassion in this life, that that maybe has an impact on the compassion in the next life, which is the next specific eye in this continuity? Yeah, that would be a, a continuity of substance, it seems to me. Yeah. Um and it seems like it would also be a continuity of type because they're both minds of compassion. But but if you t if you're talking about the compassion in an ordinary being's mind mm -hmm. and the compassion in an Arya's mind, mm -hmm. they're not a continuity. They 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 wouldn't. Uh, yeah, they're not a continuity of type. But could we say that the last, like, doesn't even sound right, but that the last moment of compassion in this life is the substantial cause for the first moment of compassion in the next life? Like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, because there's probably going to be a lot of other mental states in between there. Yeah. So the clarity and compassion of the, the clarity and compassion of one moment of of compassion uh, with a clarity and cognizance of one moment of compassion would be the substantial cause for the clarity and cognizance of the next moment of compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, would it be the substantial cause for uh, an Arya's compassion? Well, in terms of just the continuity of clarity and cognizance, there's a continuity there, but. Just because you call both of those minds compassion, you know, are they a, a continuity of, are they, yeah, a continuity of type? Well, in the sense of being compassionate they are, but in the sense of the mind in which they live, they're not the continuity of type. Because one's an ordinary being's compassion, one's an Arya's compassion. Yeah, it gets kind of complicated. What? Isn't that what Chandra Kirti says in his quote? 
this quote. Oh, in his quote where he talks about the, his, the seeds that are the, the the compassion is the seed that yeah. ripens in the mind of. So that would be the right the mind of an still an ordinary yeah. being coming into becoming a bodhisattva. So that indicates in terms of the compassion, yeah, being a continuity of type. Yes, in terms of it being the compassion of a being that sees inherent existence and a being that has realizations, yeah, they would be different types because of the the mind that they're in. Okay, the compassion of an of an Arya is very different than the compassion of an ordinary being. Because the compassion of an Arya realizes that's that third kind of compassion Chandrakirti is talking about, sees that sentient beings are empty of inherent existence. And, you know, that compassion is so strong because the Aryas see that sentient beings suffer because they're grasping at an inherent existence. Yeah. So the, their compassion is especially strong because of that. This recollection wrong, but my understanding from that teaching was that 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 they were not yet an aria. That's what that first that first very first words are. With the the three causes are in the mind before they actually. No, no. The verse about the cause when they're talking about it uh, comes a little bit er earlier. They're saying compassion is the cause at the beginning, at the middle, at the end. But that that those three beginning, middle, and end is different from the later verse where he's talking about the compassion uh, that sees sentient beings. The compassion, yeah. you know, there, it's a different set of three. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, continue on here. Uh, okay. Okay, so we left off with the clear and cognizant nature of the awakened mind is in the substantial continuity of the clear and cognizant nature of the afflictions. But the awakened mind is not in the substantial continuity of the afflictions because the afflictions have to be abandoned. From one perspective, it seems that, yeah, oh, I read that about if, you know, if... If ignorance just, you know, saw something differently, it would all be okay. Yeah. But from the viewpoint of their characteristics, okay, ignorance and the wisdom realizing emptiness are total opposite. They're not continuities of the same type. The ignorance, and they're not also not the continuities of substance because ignorance, you know, doesn't become wisdom. Ignorance is obliterated. The ignorance grasping true existence does not go to awakening. It is a totally distorted consciousness that cannot improve or become virtuous. In fact, when the antidote of the wisdom realizing emptiness is applied, ignorance degenerates and becomes non-existence. But when we look at just the clear and cognizant nature of ignorance, we can say that it can be purified and its purified continuum goes on to awakening. Okay, it doesn't go on to awakening because it's polluted, but its purified continuum, the moments of that 
of that clarity and consciousness in the future that has purified, that goes to awakening. Okay, now Dzogchen and Mahamudra. So according to Sutra, uh, meditation on the clear and cognizant nature of the mind or on the transforming Buddha nature alone will not eradicate afflictions. Why not? Yeah, it's not realizing. If we're just talking about the transforming Buddha nature, yeah, we're... Um, you know, that that mind does not go on the... Let's start over, okay. Um, meditation on the clear and cognizant nature of the mind or on the transforming Buddha nature alone will not red- eradicate afflictions because that mind does not necessarily realize emptiness. And to eradicate afflictions, it needs to be a mind directly realizing emptiness. However, it, you know, meditating on the clear and cognizant nature, on the transforming Buddha nature, it does lead us to have more confidence that afflictions are not an inherent part of the mind, and therefore that becoming a Buddha is possible. Because when you're doing meditation on the conventional nature of the mind, you're focusing on just the clear and cognizant nature of the mind. Okay? uh, This, in turn, leads us to question, what defiles the mind and what can eliminate these defilements completely? Seeking the method to purify the transforming Buddha nature we will cultivate the wisdom realizing the emptiness of inherent existence and eradicate ignorance. So far, so good, right? According to Dzogchen and Mahamudra, meditation on the clear and cognizant nature of the mind could lead the coarse winds to dissolve. And when the coarse winds dissolve, also the coarse consciousnesses dissolve. And that could lead to the subtlest clear light mind becoming manifest. Okay? So when this happens, practitioners who have previously cultivated a correct understanding of emptiness then incorporate that understanding in their meditation and use the innate clear light mind to realize emptiness and abolish afflictions. Okay, so the Dzogchen and Mahamudra folks start out meditating on the conventional nature of the mind, and they they get that, you know, just the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, and they get that, and they can keep the mind steady on that. And then if they have had previously with a different time, different kind of mental consciousness, a realization of emptiness, then when they are meditating on the clear and cognizant nature and re- of the mind and remember the emptiness of the mind, yeah, that can cause the coarse levels of wind and mind to dissolve. And when they dissolve, what is left is that fundamental innate mind of clear light. 
Okay, so that's according to how they, they, uh, yeah, spell it out. Okay, when this happens, yeah, when the fundamental, uh, when the subtlest clear light mind is manifest, practitioners who have previously cultivated um, a correct understanding of emptiness then incorporate that understanding in their meditation and use the innate clear light mind to realize emptiness and abolish afflictions. It is important to understand the sublime continuum, Maitreya's text, correctly from a Dzogchen and Mahamudra point of view. Some people take it literally, leading them to incorrectly believe that the primordial wisdom is permanent, inherently existent, independent of any other factors, and does not rely on causes and conditions. They then make statements such as, if you unravel the secret, you will be liberated. You know, people who often don't know what in the world they're talking about, but they know the words to make themselves sound good. So, so this is a good, if you unravel this secret, you will be liberated. You know, what in the world does that mean? Yeah, what secret? What am I supposed to unravel? So Dundra Jigme Tempe Nima, and his disciples, Sultram Sangpo, who were great Dzogchen scholars and practitioners, his holiness refers to them quite a bit, especially Dodra Jigme Tempe Nima is often called Dodra Chen. Yeah. Okay, so they said that the mere presence of this primordial wisdom within us alone cannot liberate us. Why not? At the time of death, all other minds have dissolved, and only the primordial mind remains, even though it has manifested in all the infinite numbers of deaths we've experienced in samsara. That has not helped us attain Buddhahood. These two sages say that in order to attain Buddhahood, it is necessary to utilize the primordial wisdom to realize emptiness. Only that will liberate us. And this is consistent with Tsongkhapa's view. Okay. So it's not just making manifest that subtlest clear light mind. Yeah, because it's been manifest in all the times we've died before. But that hasn't done us any good because we haven't realized emptiness. Some commentaries on Dzogchen and Mahamudra say, quote, uh, this wisdom that abides in the afflictions is the true wisdom. And on this basis, every sentient being is already a Buddha. Okay, so the wisdom that abides in the afflictions, remember the the clear and cognitive nature of the mind, okay? And so that's the true wisdom, or if you do it from a tantric viewpoint, it would be saying the fundamental innate mind of clear light 
is the true wisdom. And on this basis, every sentient being is already a Buddha. Okay, this is problematic. <laughs> okay, although we have been Buddhas, and so they continue to say, although we have been Buddhas from beginningless time, we have to be awakened again. The wisdom that we have now is the omniscient mind of a Buddha, and the three bodies of a Buddha exist innately in each sentient being. Okay, but where? And find it. Okay, sentient beings have a basis of essential purity that is not merely emptiness, but is endowed with three aspects. Here's the three aspects these people say the basic essence of purity of the mind. Its entity is the dharmakaya, so the mode of abiding of, abiding of pristine wisdom. Its nature is the enjoyment body, the appearance aspect of the mind. And compassion is the emanation bodies, its radiance or expression. In short, they say that all three Buddha bodies are present, fully formed in our ordinary state. But since they are obscured, we are not aware of their presence. So these people are probably thinking of uh, the, mm, the asbestos cloth with dirt on it, yeah, and saying, okay, the asbestos cloth is the the purity of the mind and it just has this dirt on it so let's burn the dirt off and you still have the asbestos cloth yeah so that you know which has an innate wisdom to it okay it's so interesting how people think of all these different ideas when I, when i was reading this it made me think in um in indonesia when we were there, you know, the Buddhism was, uh, you know, since the Chinese, so many Chinese immigrated to Indonesia, you know, in the past couple of centuries, Buddhism became quite a, you know, not the major religion. Major religion is Islam, but it was a, a strong minority. Yeah. And, uh, but at a certain time when Suharto, uh, came to power, he wanted, to make all the, you know, he wanted to make, bring the country together. And the country has, I think, 17,000 islands, 150 languages, I don't know how many religions, and it stretches, it's the longest country, you know, uh, geographically, I don't know how many time zones, three or four it's in or maybe five. Um, okay, so he wanted to bring it together. So he said, you know, we have uh, religion and the, you know, the, the certain religions, yeah, um, the, uh, religions with theocracy, you know, that believed in a creator God were all accepted. So Islam... Christianity, Judaism, you know, Hinduism, there's a creator, you know, there's a, a, a creator of some sort. 
Now, Buddhism doesn't believe in a creator, but, you know, and so under the law, if they said we don't believe in a creator, then they would not become one of the recognized religions in Indonesia, and that would make it extremely dangerous for all the people who were Buddhist. So this one Indonesian monk, Akim Okay, so he developed this theory, yeah, where you had Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, you know, being the three bodies of the Buddha, and and you know, since since the three bodies of the Buddha were all the Buddha, then the Buddha was like the creator that was had these three bodies that correlated with the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Anyway, he pulled it off so that the government recognized Buddhism as a legal country or a legal religion in the country. Okay? So it's kind of like this, you know, he took different aspects, and oh, that's the three bodies of the Buddha. And so here these people too uh, who have misunderstood the sublime continuum are are uh, saying that you know that the essential purity that is not mere emptiness but is endowed with three aspects. Its entity is the Dharmakaya, its nature the the Sambhogakaya, the enjoyment body, and compassion, the emanation or Nirmanakaya. Okay. So it it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds good. It's not correct, but it it sounds good. What? Um, what what Akashim Gina Rakita? Ah, yeah, yeah. They started teaching that, and then after Suharto, he was in power twenty something years. When they they eventually got rid of him, um, he was really bad, quite a harsh dictator. Um, then they loosened the the uh, idea for the religions a little bit, but it was interesting because uh, part of uh, Gina Rakita's group, um, you know, then, okay, we don't believe that anymore, yeah, uh, because they understood from the beginning that it was just a way of saying things for the government. But there was a, a, another group that actually believed that, that didn't want to give up that theory that, that he had made up. Interesting, yeah. Okay, where were we? Uh, okay, so such statements taken literally um, are fraught with problems. While some people are partial and unfair in their criticism and refute misconceptions in only some traditions, Chankya Rope Dorje was unbiased and pointed out in, uh, incorrect interpretations in all four Tibetan traditions, including his own Galu tradition. So in his Song of Experience of the View, yeah, he says... I uh, say this not out of disrespect to these masters, 
but perhaps they have had less exposure to rigorous philosophical investigation of the great treatises and were unable to use certain terminology appropriately. He's so polite. He doesn't say, you know, these people were dimwits. He says, you know, uh, I'm not respecting them, but, you know, that maybe they haven't had that rigorous philosophical term, uh, study, so they don't know the different ways that words can be used and the different meanings they have. Yeah. So that is, the difficulty in their assertions lies in a broad use of terminology that is not grounded in the authority of the great treatises. Okay. Of course, Chankya's comments do not apply to Dzogchen and Mahamudra masters, such as Dojo Jigme Tempe Nima and his teacher Awa Pangchu, who have done serious philosophical study and examination of the great treatises and who ground their understanding of Dzogchen in them. Okay, so their interpretations and writings are excellent. So he's differentiating between different people. All four Tibetan traditions teach practices that search for the mind, where it came from, where it goes, what its shape and color are, and so forth. So that's all meditation on the conventional nature of the mind. So speaking of this shared practice, Chankya said that after searching in this manner, we find that the mind is not tangible, it lacks color and shape, and it does not come from one place or go to another. Discovering this, meditators uh, experience a sense of voidness. Okay, they're meditating on the, nature, the conventional nature of the mind. They can't find that mind, color, shape, location, anything like that. So there's a feeling of voidness, yeah, a kind of emptiness. However, this voidness is not the emptiness of inherent existence that is the ultimate reality of the mind. It is the mere absence of the mind being a tangible object. Yeah? The mind has no color, shape, location, so on. Those are qualities of tangible objects. So it's just meaning that what the people have realized, you know, conventional nature of mind, it's not... It's not matter. Yeah. Although someone may think that that sense of voidness of it not being a tangible object is ultimate reality and meditate in that state for a long time, this is not meditation on the ultimate nature of the mind. Okay. So when we, uh, in that whole debate about, remember, um, Hoshang, Mahayana, you know, the debate in Samye. So this maybe was what he was meditating on and the mistake he made. So there were, are two ways to meditate on the mind. The first is, as above, examining whether the mind has color, shape, location, tangibility, and so forth. This leads to the sense that the conventional nature of the mind lacks these qualities. You should do that meditation, yeah? The second is the meditation on the ultimate nature of the mind 
in which we examine the mind's ultimate mode of existence and discover its emptiness of inherent existence. So these are two different senses of that you might have a sense of emptiness in both of them, but the emptiness, these two emptinesses are very different. Yeah, so just because your experience has some similarity doesn't mean what you've understood is the same thing. People who confuse these two ways of meditating on the mind and think that the mind's absence of tangibility, color, and so forth is the mind's ultimate nature, yeah, those people may criticize masters such as Dinaga and Dharmakirti for their precise expositions on debate, logic, and reasoning, saying that these only increase preconceptions. Okay, and you hear this kind of people saying this kind of thing. Why are you studying so much? You're just learning a bunch of inf- intellectual stuff, and it's just a bunch of conceptions, and we have to realize emptiness directly without any conceptions. So you're just getting all tangled up in conceptions. And the, those people will say the same thing about uh, Tantra. Oh, when you're doing Tantra, you're just visualizing all these things. You're just saying mantra. You're just keeping your mind busy with lots of conceptual things. It has nothing to do with the nature of mind. Yeah. If you haven't heard people say that, just wait, you will. I've heard people say that. It is a kind of common misunderstanding that people have. Um Yeah, but the thing is that if you've studied, then you can, you understand what the correct understanding is. Okay. That there's two different senses of the mind being quote, quote, empty or void. Yeah. It is the same way. You can walk in the room and say the room is empty and just focus on there being nothing in the room. Yeah. Is that the emptiness of inherent existence of the room? The fact that there's just nothing in it? No. But they're both, if you focus on there's nothing in the room, nothing, 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 you know, you might get some sense of, you know, the absence well, of tangibility and obstructibility and so on. And you think, oh, that's, that's, you know, the emptiness of inherent existence. But it's not. Yeah. Oh, there was a... a, a I'm going to quote one Christian pastor here that said something in the last few days. Uh, oh, because Mike Johnson, the... the um, Speaker of the House, he was talking about, I forget what he was saying, but, you know, uh, maybe it was because he changed his mind on on the, the bill. Anyway, I won't get into that part. But he was saying something like, uh, you know, God told him to, you know, not not pass this bill. You know, I think it was the, the border bill. Something like that, that, you know, the thing to have restrictions on the border that also had uh, money for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. 
And, you know, God told him, actually, it was Trump who told him. But he said he was in prayer, and God, God said, you know, no, don't, don't do that. And one pastor, I think this was what he, he said, you know, um, and one pastor said, this is a, the good line, not everything uh, that you hear in prayer is from God. Yeah, <laughs> and we know that from ourselves, don't we? You know, have you ever been in deep meditation and then you have a certain idea and that idea is just like, I've got to do that, yeah? And and then, you know, you have to say, okay, I've got to do that. I just, I you know, I was in meditation and... And I had this strong feeling that I've got to, you know, go up and meditate in the mountains, or I've got to open a center for homeless young people. And you get out of your meditation and you, you pack your bags and you're in the mountains, or you go and you open a nonprofit for, you know, homeless teens. Yeah. Without stopping and thinking after you've had that burst of energy, you know, is this actually practical, what I'm thinking of doing? So in a philosophical sense, you know, just because it comes to your mind in meditation doesn't mean it's the correct idea. Like I told you about the rabbi who was doing Zen meditation who discovered that God existed from Zen meditation. Yeah? So... This is, you know, what His Holiness is, is saying in this story is it's so important. Just because you have some feeling, yeah, that you have to really check what it is. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, people... Uh, We've all had, you know, kind of weird experiences. If you had weird experiences in meditation, sometimes you see colors or shapes or it feels like the Buddha's really there or, you know, something happens that's unusual, you know. And, um, oh, okay, when I was in Potosan, Ch uh, Chenrezig Island in China, there's one place around the, the corner of the, another side of the island where there's a cave and it said that Kuan Yin appears to people in that cave. Yeah. And so we went there, you know, I was with um, the boys, my Chinese friends. Yeah. And we went there and there were a couple of women uh, also in the, in the cave at the same time we were. And one of them was kind of, Oh, I see Kuan Yin. You know, there she is. And, uh, you know, then she kind of talked to Kuan Yin, you know, made a prayer. And then she said, okay, I think uh, we shouldn't take up too much of Kuan Yin's time. <laughs> and, they, and they left. <laughs> you know, it was so sweet, so sweet. Did Kuan Yin really appear to her? I have no idea, you know. I have no idea. Yeah. But if Kuan Yin appeared to me, I would kind of 
you know, which she didn't. I was standing in the same cave that she was looking in the same direction, and she saw Kuan Yin, and I saw rocks. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah. So maybe, uh, yeah, I totally missed it. Maybe Kuan Yin was there. I didn't see her. But maybe she wasn't there. Does it matter in the end? Yeah. Does it matter in the end whether you, yeah, whether you saw Kuan Yin or not? Yeah. In one way, well, some people are saying no, and some people are saying yes. I, uh, because people tell me all sorts of experiences, and, you know, and they ask me, you know, is, you know, did I see Kuan Yin, or did I realize emptiness, or whatever? I have no idea. Um, I asked one Lama um, this question. He, he had such a good answer. Because I said, what do, what do I say to these people when they ask me? Um, or uh, I think I had asked them specifically about a dream. People will tell me about their dreams. And, you know, is this, is this, did this really happen? Is this real? Is it really telling the future or whatever? I have no idea. Um, so I said, what do I tell them? Because they're looking to me for something. He said, interpret the dream in a way so that it encourages the person to practice. I thought, that, is a, that was such a good answer because what's important is that the person feels energized in their practice. Whether the dream they really saw Kuan Yin in the dream, whether they really, uh, you know, went to whatever, you know, we do in dreams. or You know, whether the dream is true or not, because people dream all sorts of things. You know, in a way, that's not what's important. It's how people interpret the dream that is important. Yeah. And, yeah, it's in, because after you've, you've seen, you've had this vision of Kuan Yin, yeah, what's important? That you saw Kuan Yin or you didn't? Or that you have a very positive mind that says, whether I saw Kuan Yin or not, I had a strong feeling of being close to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, I had a strong feeling of being in the presence of, you know, infinite compassion. And so that helps me to know that my compassion can increase and become like that. Are you getting what I'm saying? You know, that that's, if a person thinks like that, then whether they saw Kuan Yin or not is irrelevant. Because how they're thinking, they're going to practice well, and they will develop Kuan Yin's compassion. 
Yeah. So I thought that was, yes, that's a good way to answer people's questions. Yeah, he said, you say, well, you know, it could mean this. You're not interpreting and saying it does mean this. You're saying, well, it could mean this. And you give some kind of positive uh, meaning to your dream. Hmm? Mm-hmm. See your question about the text? Mm-hmm. So you just went through this beginning of this paragraph. There are two ways to meditate on the mind. Uh-huh. And I was have two questions related to that. Is it speaking here from the sutra perspective? Yeah, here we are. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's not that different. I mean, it's the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is the conventional mind, and emptiness is the ultimate nature. Right, so I remember, maybe you... Maybe you remember when um, Kinzer Wangdok was here and Roy was translating and mm-hmm. we were in the Shanti cabin asking him questions, questions, questions. And that's when that phase when I was all about meditating on the conventional nature of the mind. Uh-huh. And I was trying to figure out where this fits in the path for our tradition that we're uh-huh. practicing. Uh-huh. And his answer to that was, I remember thinking, it was very far along in Tantra. It was, And I was mm-hmm. wondering if you could speak about that. It was like something in the completion phase. I mean, I just remember his, I, I have the recording of his. Yeah, I, I would have to know more exactly okay. what he said to okay. to comment on it. Right. Yeah. So this is written from the sutra perspective. Yeah, um, it's not, it could be from either of them. Yeah, it's not specific to either at this point. Okay. Um, okay, so so that so other people criticizing Dignaga and Dharmakirti, saying that you know what they're teaching is just a lot of concept, preconceptions that are polluting the mind. Guntang Kunchuk Tenpe Dronme, another master who was impartial in his critical analysis of Tibetan Buddhist traditions said he found that amazing yeah and 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 Guntung Rinpoche was you know he had done the traditional study of the classical texts and to hear somebody kind of toss out Dignaga and Dharmakirti he would find that like astonishing How could somebody say that some people believe there is no need for reasoning or investigation on the path, that simply by having faith and receiving the blessing of a guru, primordial wisdom will arise. And sometimes in the tantric sadhanas, it sounds like that. Yeah? That you just have faith and you request the blessings and your wisdom will come about without having any study or any analysis or anything. In this light, His Holiness says, I have been very happy to see the establishment of more shedras, academic institutes, that teach the classical philosophical texts from India and Tibet. Okay, so he's saying, yeah, 
stick stick to uh, Dignaga and Dharmakirti and Chandrakirti and Nagarjuna and don't just toss it all away and say it's all conceptions because actually that plays a very important role in being able to realize emptiness. Yeah. Because why? Because to realize emptiness, it's not just closing your eyes and you don't see anything. Okay? That's that la uh, lack of tangibility and color and, and so forth. Okay? So that that's not it. Um, that we have to identify correctly the object of negation and then negate it. But if you haven't identified yeah, what inherent existence would be like if it existed, how can you prove to yourself that it doesn't exist? It's like if you don't know who the thief is, you're not going to find him in the crowd of people inside your, your house. Okay? So... Some people believe there is no need. Uh, oh, yeah, I just read that. Okay, so some Westerners similarly do not value Dharma study and investigation, perhaps because Buddha Dharma is relatively new in the West, and we all want instant enlightenment. You know, do it quick, get it, cross it off our list, and then we you know, just radiate light and everybody loves us. Um, okay, without a comprehensive understanding of the Buddha Dharma, people tend to seek the easiest and shortest path to awakening, a path that does not require giving up their attachments. Isn't that true? <laughs> yeah. Such an attitude exists among Tibetans as well. Tsongkhapa said that many people think that the Buddha's qualities are wonderful, but when a spiritual mentor explains through reasoning and scriptural citations how to cultivate and attain them, those people become discouraged and say, who can actually achieve such realizations? Okay. Okay, then, so I think we better stop here. But that means next week we're going to keep going until we finish. Okay, this uh, next section is quite interesting. Are we already Buddhas? We've, it's, we started talking about that a few sections back here, but now we're getting into it. Any other questions? Yeah. If we go back to page 332, I think, yeah, we're, we're talking about the causal clear light mind. Mm -hmm. um, when it says the coarser minds of the waking state are derivatives of this everlasting mind. Wait, the, the, the coarser minds of the waking state are derivatives of yeah. this everlasting mind. What does that mean? That, that means that because the, the fundamental nature of the mind exists, yeah, those other uh, coarse minds also exist. They have that underlying nature of clarity and awareness. They, they derive 
from that. Actually, in in the um, when you're dying, okay, as everything's dissolving, yeah, there's eight stages. If we go directly, let's just pretend we, we're not talking about the first four, because that's the your your gross senses dissolving and your senses cease, cease to function. Then the the fifth stage is the the white appearance. So it's a, an appearance of just everything being white. Yeah. Um, the second is the the red increasing experience. So it's just everything being, they say, like the orange of uh, a dawn when the sky's really orange. And then after that, the seventh stage is the black near attainment. And that uh, part of that, you're conscious, and part of it, it's like you fall into a swoon. And then when that ceases, the eighth stage is the fundamental innate mind of clear light that manifests. Okay. When you enter the bardo, then the first moment of the bardo becomes the black near attainment. Okay. So you went in on this sequence. You go into the bardo as the mind goes again from the subtlest to a little bit grosser in the bardo. Then first you have the, the black near attainment. Then you have the red increasing mind. Then you have the, the white vivid appearance. And then after that, you have coarser minds again. Okay. So it's like you're going into the subtlest mind. And then as soon as you're in the bardo, you're going back the backwards. So those minds are derivatives of that fundamental innate mind of clear light. Okay. And the karma is driving that tendency? The what? The karma? Uh, the karma is, uh, you know, that's a natural process, the, the dissolution. Where karma comes in is it ripens uh, towards the end of the fourth stage where you still have a conceptual consciousness. And what karma is ripening will uh, push you towards a certain kind of Bardo body and future body in your next life. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful because I think I tend to confuse, I mean, just the idea of a fundamental innate mind of clear light with a mind basis of all. Oh, they're totally different. Right, right. Totally just different. the idea of things deriving from it. You know? uh, so that word threw me off. Yeah. Okay. No, mind basis of all yeah, is of course, a, it's a totally different, different thing. thing. But, you know, it carries the seeds. And, yeah. 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 And then the um, sorry, then separate to that, this, um, the idea of a continuity of type, right? So, uh, this, the manifest, the mind of manifest anger, is it the same continuity of type as the seed of anger? Hmm. But they're not the same substance, right? Because the, not continuity of substance for sure. Yeah, because the, the manifest mind and the, the seed, are quite different, except the manifest mind is the, I mean, the seed is the manifest, becomes, it ripens into the manifest mind. They are in a continuity. But the seed is abstract composite. Right. And doesn't have clarity and cognizance. No. Okay. It's not a consciousness. Right. Okay. Yeah, so in that way, they wouldn't want, 
it wouldn't be the substantial cause of the, the mind of anger. But in another way, that seed, you know, is the thing that makes the manifest state of anger come up. So maybe there would be, you know, continuity of type, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So we'll stop here. And we will talk about are we already Buddhas next week? Are you already a Buddha? Will you be by next week? Maybe you're saying, oh, by next week, no. Are, are we already Buddhists this week? No. Next week, yes. <laughs> How you came to the idea of putting these three topics together in this one book? Oh, okay. Next week, maybe. Oh, yeah. It, read, read the... Um, the prologue. Okay. Yeah, it's in the prologue. Okay. It was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, after we finish the book, we'll, we'll go back and we'll read the, you know. Or is it, did I call it prologue? Is that the, the name? It's before the introduction. Huh? Preface. Yeah, not prologue, preface. Okay. Okay.